0: Wind and Tide. Hello and welcome to Family 360,
1: a podcast exploring all the ways we are family to each other.
0: Each episode welcomes conversations with specialists, artists, and storytellers. I'm Rachel Cram, founding director of Wind & Tide Educational Community.
1: I'm Roy Salmon, audio producer and founder of Whitewater Studios. And together, we're the hosts
0: of Family 360. Find us on our website,
1: family360podcast.com,
0: or follow us on Facebook or Instagram for wise words from our fabulous guests.
1: And now for this week's episode.
0: Dr. Pawa knows firsthand why worry, fear, and negative thoughts lead to illness and why calming our mind is the single most effective practice we can pursue to restore balance to the body.
1: At 32, Bao was a family physician, partner, and parent to two young children when a terrible accident altered her body, family, and career. Mm. After seven years of chronic pain, anxiety, and fatigue, she went to Harvard Medical School and discovered answers for herself and for the thousands of patients she's cared for and cured since that time.
0: Dr. Pawa is the author of The Mind-Body Cure, a comprehensive guide for understanding stress, wellness, and healing.
1: She's now a physician with a focus on integrative medicine and co-founder of West Coast Women's Clinic in Vancouver, British Columbia.
0: And that is why you'll hear seagulls in the background <laughs> of her conversation, because she lives on the West Coast of Canada. Yes,
1: and we forgot to ask her to close her windows before we started recording. Yeah,
0: I think it gives her interview a homey feel. It does.
1: And Dr. Pow is definitely someone who makes you feel mm-hmm. at home. So let's jump into our conversation with Dr. Bal Powell.
0: Well, Bal, thank you so much for meeting today. I am so looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Heard great thanks for your show. Oh, thank you. Well, as I've been watching you over the last weeks in interviews and in your wonderful TED Talk and in reading your book, I have many questions and I know you have an abundance of responses. And I think this is going to be a really informative interview. Well, I hope
2: so. I want your listeners to glean as much as they can out of this. And I think you and I are going
0: to discuss a lot of stuff today. <laughs> <laughs> Some great stuff. That's a good start. <laughs> well, as I was preparing, I keep getting this visual of the lint drawer in my dryer and RSP contributions. There's all these things that I didn't know in life And then suddenly I discovered them and I thought, oh my goodness, why didn't I know this? Like, why did I not know that you had to empty the lint drawer after every load? Why did I not know that I was supposed to start making RRSP contributions way before I did? There's so many things in life to know. And I feel like your book for health is this list of, these are the things that you must know to be able to survive and thrive in life. Yet we don't. You know, Rachel, that. filter in the dryer. I had no idea until I got married and
2: it was full. <laughs> and then I realized, oh my God, we need to change this. But that's a great analogy about the nervous system. It is so integral to our body. And we all have one. And we don't have a instruction manual on the nervous system. So that's what this book is about, to tell people one, that they have a nervous system, and two, how to use it to their benefit so it works for you, not against you.
0: Hmm. Well, over this last year with the pandemic, obviously it's ushered in whole new levels of stress. But even before the pandemic, we were at what many people were calling chronic levels of stress. And you even say, I've heard this in some of your talks, that 75 to 80% of the symptoms that come into a doctor's office are related to stress. And I would say as an educator, the same is true in the classroom. I would say that probably 75 to 80% of the behavior problems and the learning concerns that you see in a classroom are related to stress. And so this is such an important topic. But before we jump into that, um, I like to start conversations on Family360 with a question just to help listeners connect to you so that we can connect before you direct. Sure, that'd be great. Okay, here's the question. Aristotle stated, give me a child at seven and I will show you the adult. And I'm wondering, Baal, is there a story or experience from your childhood that has shaped the adult that you are today? Well,
2: you know, I immigrated here with my family to Newfoundland on the East Coast of Canada back in 1967. And of course, there were so many differences, but the one I remember the most is sitting in a classroom, I was in grade two, and there was a girl with very blonde hair like yours sitting right in front of me, and I couldn't speak a word of English, and her hair sort of fell on my desk, and first I just kind of gently touched it, but the curiosity was, is this real? I wonder if it's attached to her head. And I gave it a big tug, and she yelped. <laughs> and then the teacher just looked at me and reprimanded me. But I just didn't have the words to explain. I was just curious. I just wanted to know if it was real. It was just like when you experience snow for the first time. Mm-hmm. That natural curiosity hasn't left me, and I'm still curious to this day. And I think that's what propels my passion and growth, I always ask questions and I want to know and I want to get to the literal root cause of the problem. (laughs) Where had you immigrated from? From India. My father thought he was coming to the bright lights of Toronto. And back then there's no internet. So he applied for the job and landed in this tundra. And it, it was just middle of February and snow everywhere. It was quite A climate shock, a culture shock, but it goes back to adaptability, resilience, and the warmth that we received in the community and the way they embraced us. I think all those three components contributed to us making it a home here.
0: Hmm. Well, I've never been to Newfoundland, but I want to go. This looks like a, a gorgeous province to explore. It's a beautiful geographical province, but you know what? The people are just
2: so unconditionally loving and embracing and that's still my home it's where my heart is and I'm still connected with all the people back there.
0: Hmm. I love hearing that because you know there's so many stories right now of where there is exclusion and us and them and people not having that kind of community so we need to hear stories like that.
2: Yeah, it's a wonderful story. And one of these days, I'm going to
0: write about it too. I have one more book in me. <laughs> you do, I know. And not just on Newfoundland, because you're planning one more book about stress, I believe. And I love the title you're talking, Mind Your Ovaries. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> I, I talk to a lot of women, Rachel, so from ages 18 up to age 70, 75. And across the reproductive spectrum, we don't realize how impactful stress hormones are to the ovarian tissue and the ovaries really react. So when we think about PMS, postpartum depression, PMDD, depression at menopause, our hormones are really powerful neuromodulators for women. So-
0: I, I, I think we need to have a conversation about that. <laughs> we do. And you and I need to have a conversation about that because that is exactly where my life is heading right now. I need to mind my ovaries. <laughs> Perhaps that's an overshare. But I am so looking forward to hearing other stories that you have to share as well. I know that you've had some very significant moments in your life that have absolutely shaped you, even in, in addition to those early memories. So I look forward to getting into that. When I listen to you speak, Belle, when I read your book... I feel like you are this wonderful mother wanting to scoop us all under your wings out of great, great care for humanity. It, it comes across with deep care connected to it. And I think that's what it makes it resonate.
2: You're absolutely right. I am doing this as a passion project because I'm at the sunset of my career. I've been in practice for 30 years. My kids have left home. They're independent. And I think the time was just right, mm. not just for me personally, but I think people are ready to listen. They're tired of just taking a pill for every year. They're tired of a list of drugs that they have to take and then deal with all the side effects, right? I mean, antidepressants, sleeping pills, just the pandemic. Just look at the 40 to 50% rise in prescriptions for those drugs. Look at heartburn medication going through the sky. People want a better, sustainable solution. And there's no time like now to give them some tools to say, okay, mental health is an issue and mental health becomes a physical problem. So what can you do? How can I empower you to do some self-care? So this is why it's so important right now more than ever.
0: mm mm-hmm. There's a couple of reasons why I think your voice is particularly strong with this. One, because you are a medical doctor. Two, because you have experienced chronic stress in your own life. So you are speaking about this as someone who's lived it and who has been changed as a result of these experiences. I'm wondering, can you share a story that I know started when you were 32 years old? Mm-hmm. and I and I know has changed your life. You know, there was a time
2: that I felt very vulnerable to share my story because as a physician, you feel, wow, if she can't heal herself, how is she going to heal others? And yeah. it, it happened at a time when I was at the pinnacle of my career. I was 32, I had two kids, and I was pregnant with our third child. And as part of my general practice, I love to deliver babies. And I love bringing life into this world and I had just finished doing a very difficult labor and I was looking forward to going home and seeing my own two children I was driving home and I was literally hit by a truck and I was Mm -hmm. catapulted into traffic and it it was a horrific accident and I was wheeled back to the same emergency I had just left an hour or two before that and Mm -hmm. now I'm coming back not as a physician I'm coming back as a patient and that began a seven year journey. I lost my baby in the mm-hmm. ordeal. I had PTSD from the accident because I kept reliving the accident over and over. I had multiple physical trauma, I had broken bones, a collapsed lung. And your body heals. But in those seven years, after multiple surgeries, many, many different medications, specialists galore, I couldn't go back to doing deliveries my shoulder was unstable. Mm-hmm. So I went to Harvard Medical School to learn how to do counseling on mind-body medicine. And I met Dr. Herbert Benson, who's a cardiologist. Mm-hmm. He was working on research for the nervous system, the way we function and how our body responds through the nervous system. And it was just transformative, Rachel, because mm-hmm. for me personally, I reclaimed my health and I was able to heal. Mm -hmm. He said, you cannot heal when you're living in fight or flight. So my trauma, the emotional trauma, the physical pain, the chronic pain that I had was all keeping me stuck in fight or flight. And then he said, in order to heal, you have to live more in the parasympathetic system. That means put the brakes on. And he taught me how to put the brakes on. So I'd had to really transform the way I was thinking because your mindset becomes a victim mindset when you're in chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And I had to do a lot of shifting myself to get back and reclaim who I was. And through that process, I was able to fully regain my health. I went off all the Mm -hmm. medication. And then I co-founded a clinic that was integrative health, looking at hormones, stress hormones, female hormones. And that was 20 years ago, and here I am. (laughs) So I've helped to transform many other lives Mm -hmm. since then.
0: Thanks for sharing that story, Belle. I know it's in the past, but I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah. At some time or other, we all encounter these moments in our lives, maybe not as, as dramatic as yours, but where everything shifts and life becomes complicated. And I think there is this tendency to fall into a victim mindset, as you said, and what do you call it here? An illness mindset instead of health mindset. Everybody has stress. How do we know that we're dealing with the the regular stresses of life or the more dire ones like you just described? How do we know if we're dealing with it well? That's a great question. And stress is pervasive.
2: And how we show up and manage stress is very individualized. I've had patients who've grown up on the streets, been knocked around. They've had so much stress, but yet they're very resilient. And then I've had other patients who went through a very pristine life without hardly ever a bump, and then they hit something and they fall apart. Mm -hmm. So where does resilience come from? And I think what we have to realize is that stress is either overt or covert. You can't judge, you can't look at somebody and say, oh, they're stressed, because overtly, we know that divorce we know that money matters, and health issues, and loss of a loved one can all be stressful events, and we can all agree that that can be stressful. So that's overt stress. We so all so overt agree. means
0: it's clear to it's clear to everybody. There's else. tangibles in your life that are evidence of why you should feel stressed. That's correct. But the bigger issue is the covert stress. So these are the saber tooth tigers that
2: are in our head. We have to learn to tame those tigers. As human beings, we embed a lot of trauma and suffering when we feel that we're not safe or we're not accepted, if we're rejected, if we're abandoned, if we're lonely, if we feel jealousy, if we feel less than, if we're not enough. All those fears, which are covert stressors, they travel on the same pathway as if your brain witnessed a saber-toothed tiger. Hmm. They still turn on your nervous system and you produce cortisol and adrenaline. On the outside, you might be this duck floating on a pond, very calm, but underneath the feet are just going crazy. So a lot of people function like that. They look very calm on the outside, but you want to know what's going on covertly. And now we're able to measure stress in different ways through functional MRIs. We can measure stressful thoughts. We can measure hormones of stress. We were not able to do that 30 years ago. So now I can connect the science and the diagnostics with someone's thought patterns Mm -hmm. and see that wow, by thought alone, heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up, they start to sweat, they go into a panic attack by thought alone. So this is what makes you realize that our thoughts are the language of the mind, but our feelings are the language of the body. And we've been focusing on feelings and trying to fix the feelings. We can't fix how you feel until you heal what's in the mind.
0: Where do those thought patterns originate? Well, I think you have a
2: background in early childhood education. Mm -hmm. And from zero to eight, we're like a sponge. Mm -hmm. We're taking in everything. Mm -hmm. The way your parents dealt with stress, how did they show up? what kind of home you were in. Did you have adverse childhood experiences? Were you abused sexually? Were you abused emotionally, physically? Were you neglected? There are three kinds of ACEs, right? So you can have... ACEs? What do you mean by ACEs? ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. Okay. And there's three kinds of those. Okay. Yeah. There's abuse, there's neglect, and then there's household dysfunction. So abuse would be psychological, psychological, or physical or sexual abuse. Neglect would be physical neglect. You're not given proper food or clothing or shelter. And then there's emotional neglect. You grow up in a very wealthy home, but the mother and the father are disconnected from you. As human beings, we're biologically hardwired to connect with other trusting adults and form stable relationships. Mm-hmm. So that's a form of neglect. Household dysfunction, you know, there's divorce, there's conflict, there's violence. I have many patients who say, Oh, my husband was abusive, but he never lifted a finger on the kids. He only beat me up. Mm-hmm. And I would say, Well, the child witnessed that. And so that's a type of adverse childhood experience. So when we have adverse childhood experiences, but actually causes changes in the child's brain. And they view the world as not a safe place, Mm. not a trusting place. Mm. And so we know that ACE scores are associated with many diseases, right? Autoimmune diseases, diabetes, long-term chronic illnesses. But it also is associated with mental health issues Mm. and repeating violence or substance abuse. So what can we do about it? This is the good news, is that neuroplasticity means that our brain is not concrete, it's open to new neural circuits. But what we have to do is rise above all the conditioning and the trauma and reach a better place of consciousness. So we have our conscious and a subconscious mind. Our belief systems and mindsets are formed by the subconscious. But if you wanna make some changes, you have to stay awake and say, am I just a product of my past? Am I a product of my conditioning? And you start catching yourself in your thought process, and you're able to create new neural circuits using some of the formulas that I'm going to teach you today.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and with those formulas, especially for someone with a high A score, you can wonder, is this going to be too hard? Will I have the capacity to do this? And you say simple, realistic changes to mindset and lifestyle can bring positive changes to your health right now. And I'm just so excited for you to bring this forward because they are simple. They, they're not necessarily easy, but they are simple.
2: They're they're simple, but you have to be consistent and habituated to it. So maybe we should talk about the difference between the mind and the brain at yes, this point. Yes, please do. <laughs> so think about the brain. We can take a CAT scan of your brain. And when I was doing anatomy as a medical student, we could dissect the brain. It weighs about three pounds. It feels like tofu. It's, it's a big Glob of fat. But underneath all those layers, there are millions and millions of neurons that wire together and form neural circuits. And these are our patterns of behavior that we've embedded. And so we know that the brain is in the head, but where's the mind? Mm -hmm. The mind lives everywhere, it's your consciousness. And your mind is like the programmer, it sets the program, and then your brain plays the program. And your body is like a display monitor. And as physicians, we just look at the display monitor. Oh, Mrs. Smith, how are you feeling today? I'm tired. I have insomnia. My legs hurt. She's telling me how she's feeling. But if I want her to change how she's feeling, I got to go back, put in a new program in the brain. And who puts in the new program? The mind. The mind is your consciousness. Mm. So if we can learn how to tap into our consciousness, the ability to think about what you're thinking. Well, that's metacognition, the ability to think about what you're thinking. So if you can tap into that through some techniques I'm gonna show you, that's when you can rewrite a new program and embed that program and do it over and over until you form new neural networks that change your habits, your behavior, the choices and the decisions, and ultimately your feelings, the way you feel.
0: A title in your book, you say, How to Short-Circuit Stress Hormones and Create a Healthy Brain. And that's what you're describing yes, there.
2: That's what I'm describing. Yeah. Our brain is electrical, it's chemical, it's biochemical, it's biological. There are so many aspects, and we can actually measure brain waves with EEGs. Mm-hmm. We can measure neurotransmitters. We can measure how neurons fire now with functional MRI. We can see where blood flows with people who meditate. We can see blood flow going to separate areas, people who are stressed chronically abused, we can see that certain areas in their brain grow bigger than other areas. So so much new data and new diagnostic technologies emerging that we can now measure what we could never measure before. We always knew stress could cause disease, mm. but now we see stress is made in the brain through the nervous system and it actually affects the very
0: organ that originated the stress. Mm. This is so fascinating. Bell, Belle, I'm wondering if now is a good time to move into your BMW. Mm-hmm. Okay. I like how you started your TED Talk offering everyone a BMW. <laughs> I, I wonder if that's a good direction to head now into your BMW mindful practice, how we prevent our mind from driving our brain around the bend. <laughs> and I think realizing we have control over our thoughts and our minds.
2: Yeah. So, Rachel, I think the thing that people need to know is we can mm. name it, tame it, and reframe it. And let me take you through that. Okay. And what are we naming? We're going to name the thoughts. We're going to be the metacognition expert and say, okay, there I go. I observe it and I name it. That's a fear thought. That's a negative thought. So you name it and then you tame it. You tame it by using the BMW meditation. So Mm. meditation is the thoughtful act of creating order. And when you look at our mind. It's constantly going. There's so many thoughts. But meditation is going to allow you to create that order. And what you want to do
0: is engage three things, BMW, breath, mind, and word. Okay, so breath, mind, word. I'll be like your point monitor for the listeners. Okay. So breath, how is breath important? Breath is very
2: important because it's going to turn on your rest and repair. You inhale through your nose. You hold for five seconds and exhale through your mouth. When you do that slowly and deeply for about five minutes, your heart rate will go down, blood pressure goes down, the blood flow to your gut is better, the oxygen flow is better. So we know you're in rest and repair. That's the breath. The M is the mind. We've got to get your mind to be calm and just focus on the breath. Don't think about anything else. Be in the present moment and just focus on the breath. Mm -hmm. The W is a word. It really helps if you pick a word. It could be amen or om, whatever resonates with you. And you say the word when you exhale. Mm -hmm. So you're breathing in, holding for five seconds and exhaling through your mouth. And when you exhale, just say the word amen or om, whatever works. Those three things together get you into the nervous system. That's where you tame it. You're now controlling your nervous system. Your nervous system is not controlling you. That's the difference.
0: Okay. So just to clarify, you can let me know if I'm off track here. When a stressful thought is in our mind, we name it, identify the thought, we tame it, use BMW, breath, mind, and word to control the thought. So we name the thought, tame the thought, and then how do we reframe the thought?
2: Okay. So name it tame it and reframe it. Now you move to the next section.
0: And if I can continue on as your point monitor, yeah. Val, you have another acronym for reframing our thoughts, SODA, S-O-D-A. What's a SODA technique?
2: Yeah, SODA is wonderful. You can now lay down new neural circuits. You want new thoughts, new patterns, new decisions and choices. Okay. So you stop, you observe, you D is for detach from the fear-based thought that you identified. And A is for affirming a trust-based thought. So it might be that you know you have a fear of walking into a room with strangers and you say, oh, they're not going to like me. So you've got this, this fear. So a, a better thought that would serve you, say, I am safe. I'm whole. I'm complete. I don't need anyone's approval, right? So you use a different affirmation and you show up in the same situation, but now your mind has shifted. You're not in a fearful state, you're in a trust state. Hmm. So that's called the SODA technique. And you can use that for almost any situation, because any situation is individually perceived. And it's not the actual reality, it's just how you're reacting to it. Hmm. right? So name it, tame it and reframe it is something you can use in any situation. And it's a skill that A lot of parents want to teach their kids when they're young because stress is not going away. Mm. Stress is pervasive. Mm. And what if we could teach our kids to do relaxation techniques when they're very young? That would be a life skill. That they could use and implement for the rest of their lives because stress is not going to leave them.
0: Yeah. You know, it's really interesting in schools right now. There are lots of changes that are happening to try and alleviate stress for kids. Um, We've taken away grades. We've really changed how testing happens. We've changed how sports happens. There's been elimination of a lot of competitions. And while part of that's healthy and probably important, I do think what you're just describing is that. We need to know how to deal with the stress. Trying to take it away isn't really the answer. It's not going to work. So if I can just make sure that I've got this clear. So you're saying when we feel stress, what we need to do is try and name it, name one of those thoughts. And there might be a lot of them I'm thinking in my mind when Mm -hmm. I'm stressed. And how specific do we need to get?
2: Just say that's anger, that's resentment, that's guilt,
0: that's fear, that's uncertainty. You know, that's what you identified. Mostly it's fear-based. Okay, because often in my brain, there's a lot of different emotions yeah. that are going on there. So we're just trying to get one of them at a time. We're, we're we're Yeah. Basically, you're recognizing
2: most of them are fear or negative based. So you just say, ah, I see you. You're a fear-based thought. That's anger. You're angry because it didn't go your way. So you recognize the
0: emotion, you name it. You name it. And then you work on taming it which is the BMW. That's right. I've always wanted a BMW. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And then you're reframing it with soda, S-O-D-A.
2: So when you use the soda technique, now you're not just going to be calm. You're actually going to be different the next time you show up because that's what lays down the framework is soda technique helps you to put in new pathways you're creating a new program remember the mind is the programmer and your brain's going to play a different program a program of trust Mm. not fear Mm. so this is what we're aiming for is when we create resilient minds we want our mind to create a program of trust of safety of feeling whole and complete And as I was saying, teachers and parents, you know, the newer way to impart uh, some of these techniques to children is first working on yourself, doing the work, so that when you show up as a parent or a teacher, you're consciously role modeling, you're showing up, you hear them and feel them, and not just
0: react to what they're saying. Hmm. So how would that look different to less conscious parenting, parenting without access to this kind of knowledge? Okay. Let me talk on that a little more. Okay. So you as a teacher or a parent will actually walk
2: into a room, see a kid who's taken a pair of scissors and cut his hair off. And immediately you might react and say, Oh my God, what did you do? You could have cut your ear off. Or the conscious parent might take a deep breath in, not worry about what other people are going to think or what might've happened and respond not react and say oh this is really interesting i'm curious what were you trying to do here what did you think was going to happen with those scissors so you're more inquisitive Hmm. so then that allows the child to say okay i i made the mistake it's not the parent pointing out a mistake the child then realizes oh scissors have a consequence the scissors cut off hair and this could last a long time this mistake so they realize it on their own so the consciousness that comes into parenting and teaching has to begin with the individual doing their own work
0: when you show up Mm -hmm. thanks for listening to family 360 and our conversation with physician and author dr bal powa Our next release is the first of a four-episode highlight series, starting with The Road to Resilience, our conversation with parenting specialist, author, and Australia's queen of common sense, Maggie Dent. Join us. And now back to our conversation with Dr. Balpawa, who's about to describe how we begin to move out of anxiety and into calm by altering the depth of our breath. So it comes down to how we breathe our way through the day and through the stress. That's right.
2: You know, everybody thinks, okay, you're born, you take your first breath, and it's automatic. And then when you die, you take your last breath. And every breath in between, we call it life. And we breathe 23,000 breaths a day. But we don't have to consciously think about breathing. If you try to stop breathing, you can't. Your autonomic nervous system kicks in. However... You can control how you breathe. And I had to relearn breathing. And When I went to Harvard to do the training, I had to learn it. that I was holding my diaphragm way up high because I was in chronic pain. I had a lot of pain from my neck and shoulder. I had the whole PTSD from the accident. And that makes you very, very hypervigilant, alert. So your diaphragm is constantly living up high in your chest. Well, that sends a message to your brain saying, uh-oh, we're going to be attacked by a saber tooth tiger mm. any second. Be on alert. So I had to learn to lower my diaphragm, learn to take deep breaths and be very mindful when I was breathing. Breathing, which is so integral to life, that is what life is. When we have no breath, we have no life. <laughs> breathing is so important. And if we can become more mindful of our breathing, At every moment, we're sending a signal to your nervous system saying, we're calm, we're safe, we're okay. But if we don't breathe mindfully, the poor nervous system thinks you're on alert. Mm -hmm. So a busy mom running around, you know, she's got to go pick up the kids, get the groceries, pick up dry cleaning, pick up the dog. Well, that busy to-do list, our primitive little brain where stress is processed cannot tell the difference between a busy to-do list and a saber-toothed tiger chasing her. Mm. So it's going to still produce cortisol and adrenaline and make her very edgy. Well, what does that do to the mom when the kid, she picks up from school, gets in the car, and the mom is on edge and hypervigilant, and the kid says something, she reacts, not Mm. responds, she reacts right away. She's already jumped the conclusion and figured out what she's supposed to say, or she might have gone to the worst case scenario, catastrophizing. So this is why it's really important as parents that we show up very consciously and say, how am I showing up? Do I respond or do I react? Is my nervous system just automatically going into stress? Because stress is automatic. But relaxation is not. It's conscious. It's something that you have to bring on voluntarily by using your conscious mind.
0: You talked about breathing in your diaphragm. Am I understanding you correctly to say that when you're breathing in your diaphragm, that is when you're living in anxiety? Is that right?
2: Well, if you're on edge, it was designed that when you were running from a tiger, your diaphragm would be riding up high and if you're shallow breathing, you're only using the top part of your lungs. That's what you do when you're in fight or flight. So you how do you shallow
0: breathe? So how do you know if you're breathing like that? How do you know if you're shallow breathing and maintaining that kind of Constant vigilance for tigers. Is that something that we can feel with our hands on our chest?
2: Yes, you can. You can actually locate your diaphragm. When you take a deep breath in, your belly should fill up with air. Mm -hmm. When you take a deep breath in, you should be belly
0: breathing. So when you take a deep breath in, your stomach should be going out. Going out. Okay. Yeah. So that's one way. And if your stomach's going in, when you breathe in, if your stomach's coming in, does that mean that you are breathing in your diaphragm? Where you don't want to be breathing, is that Where
2: you don't want to be breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's more shallow breathing. So deep breathing would be belly breaths, where your belly pops out, and also where your shoulders. If your shoulders are riding high and you're carrying a lot of stress, all these muscles around our chest called intercostal muscles, they become very tight when you're habituated to being in stress all the time. So I'll see patients and I'll say, take a deep breath. And I really have to force them to open up their lungs. But if I just watch them, they're using just the top part of their lungs and they're very stressed and their muscles are tight. I can feel their trapezius and their intercostal muscles are very tight. Mm -hmm. So we become habituated. If you're in chronic pain or chronic anxiety, you just learn to live like that but we're not living with true
0: breathing. And oxygen is the drug of choice. That's what we want for all ourselves. Yeah, yeah. This is so excellent, Val. Oxygen is the drug of choice. That's a great line. Now, I know there's so much more you have to say on this. And so people will probably need to pick up your book. Uh, but is there more you want to say right now on name it, tame it, reframe it? Or or do you want to just move on? Like, do you want to, Is there anything else you want to say? I, I think it's important for people to know that our brain will naturally
2: default to what's missing and the negative. We have a negative bias because that's how we learn to survive as humans is always to look for what's missing. So we have to consciously, you know, savor the good, take in the good, relish the good moments and celebrate the good moments, because that actually helps our neurocircuits to become more resilient. So if we're trying to create resilient minds, which is the opposite of
0: stress minds, then taking in the good is very important. Mm -hmm. That sounds fabulous. I'd love to explore that with you. Now, you've got some techniques, I don't know if that's the right word, some practices that people could consider in addition to BMW and soda to help override that negative bias. Would you want to share what some of those are? Yeah,
2: we'll, we'll share a couple of them. Um, as I say, our brain was designed to just live in the negative and always be hypervigilant and default to stress because that's how we survived as a species. So some people have cultivated gratitude, for example, or they've learned optimism. So optimism can be learned. So taking in the good is very important. If we want to create resilient minds, we have to teach people how to cultivate the good stuff. We gloss over the good stuff and we focus on what's missing. We say oh you know how was your day today oh you know what the teacher yelled at me and then this kid knocked me over in the playground and, and the kid starts to realize that if he complains and brings home negative things then the mother picks up on that that is so we, true that's so, so true, true. because
0: how often when your kids get into the car and you say how was your day how often they go it was glorious exactly <laughs> you know? but if they're modeled that at home and if we as
2: parents say let's sit and savor you know what, we just had a really great dinner. Let's just savor the moment. Mm. Hey, how nice was that wonderful picnic in the park? Let's think about that. And on a multisensorial level, use all your senses to take in the good. It's called taking in the good. Mm. And when we do more TIG, taking in the good helps to create a resilient brain. And then you get habituated To always savoring the good moments rather than amplifying the bad stuff. So if you look at certain households, they amplify the bad stuff, right? Oh, this happened to Johnny and the parents get caught up in it and then it becomes a big drama. And what if they acknowledge something bad? Of course, we don't gloss over it, but we also... Equalize it by amplifying the good stuff. Well, what good happened today? So I, I got in the practice with my children when they were young. I said, "Tell me five good things before you go to bed. What happened? What are the five things you're grateful for, or five good things that happened today?"
0: I've done this with my kids too. Sometimes they're like, "Oh, mom," <laughs> but I I think that I have done it without the full understanding of how that does habituate gratitude, as you explain in the book, and how we can habituate optimism and gratitude in place of anxiety and worry. So, so important to know these things. Now, Belle, I know there is so much you can talk about, and I'm whipping through my notes in front of me right now, knowing that we're about to run out of time. Can we spend a little more time on our propensity towards a negative bias versus taking in the good? You have some very simple, but intriguing practices for this. And I know our listeners will really appreciate concrete examples.
2: That that there are some things that they can do. uh...
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of three in particular that really caught my attention. I have them highlighted here. Mm -hmm. They start on page 56 in your book. Uh, The first is story, saver smile. The second is train your brain. And the third is neurobic exercises, which I found quite fascinating. Okay, so those are
2: great reframing techniques. As I mentioned earlier, we have a negative bias, and we don't spend enough time taking in the good. So a way to take in the good is to amplify the story, to savor it, and to smile. And what Mm -hmm. that means is, Relive a good experience by using all your senses to remember it. The sun was shining on my face. How did that feel? The grass was soft on my feet. There was a fragrance of lilacs close by. So all the sights and sounds of the story are embedded into your brain on a multi-sensorial level. And -hmm. just by thought alone, you can create a good feeling. Just by thought alone, we can create stress and bad scenarios. By thought alone, we can create good scenarios by amplifying them. Mm -hmm. The reason that we remember bad stories, things that happened in the past, is because our brain honed in on it. And when you're reframing a story it's really important to amplify the good things and then taking the time to savor it Mm. savor it means relive it Mm. over and over and smiling our muscles embed memory also they did a study on depressed patients and just getting them to laugh at humor showing them a funny movie And reminding them about laughter, once they started, the facial muscles sent messages back up to the brain and reactivated good memories again about laughter and joy. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a mind-body connection, but also a body-mind connection. There's a bi-directional flow between the body and the mind that our muscles also carry memory and they can help us to relive good things by using smiling as an example of a muscle memory.
0: I see a real importance in the way that we ask each other questions. We ask people questions that lead into the difficulties in their life, into the traumas in their life, because that's kind of what's interesting. That's kind of how media works, isn't it? They play the horrific because that's what grabs people's attention. And I think even just as parents or as friends or partners, remembering to ask about those beautiful experiences, because it is so important. I think of when after a woman's given birth, it It is such a traumatic experience, but you tend to need to tell that story again and again with all the senses. you just want to keep reliving it yes,
2: and but the women, interestingly enough, I used to do a lot of obstetrics and deliveries, so what's interesting is they forget the horrendous pain yes, they forget all the the trauma associated. Most women just remember holding that baby. <sighs> And that's why it's beautiful. They go on to have another baby because imagine (laughs) if they just remembered the pain and the difficulty. So it's really important to say, okay, what was the good thing that came out of this? And that's why I've reframed the accident as well. If Mm. I used to think about the accident, the loss and the pain, and I could go into a bad place. But I now look at it and I've reframed it and I say, I became a better parent, Mm. I became a better human being, and I definitely became a more comprehensive physician because I started to look at patients through a different lens. So I think something really good happened Mm. from something bad. That's an example of reframing and learning to savor the story and you put it into a context that works for you rather than against you. Mm.
0: Well, you know, when you have those... Uh, group discussions where people are sitting around and doing those get-to-know-you questions. There's a common question. Tell about an experience in your life that's really shaped who you are today. Very frequently, people share something that was difficult at the time. It's actually really interesting you
2: bring that up because I was just recently uh, speaking with another researcher talking about PTSD. Mm -hmm. And so they took assault victims and they said, if an assault happened and that person was nurtured afterwards, if that victim was taken and given a lot of love and support and care, their brain did not remember the trauma as negatively as another person who got assaulted, but then weren't listened to or they weren't addressed. The trauma actually was deeper and had more stress producing hormones in those patients. So parents and teachers who are around kids who just had a traumatic event in the playground, what they do with that event to frame it and put it into context is very important if they provide the support, the safety, the security and say, look, you're going to be okay, we got this and we're going to get you through it. That really helps to to create resilience in the brain. So this is the new trauma-informed therapy that they're doing for bullying, for example, in schools. Mm.
0: Thank you for sharing that, I'm loving this. Again, so much more I could ask, but we'll keep moving through these three reframing techniques. So with turning a negative bias into a positive perspective, you've just talked about story, saver smile. Then you talk about train your brain, and you say at least 10 times each day, I try to become aware of my automatic pathways and consciously change my vocabulary if it's negative. I found this very interesting. So awareness is the agent of change,
2: Rachel. When we become aware of our inner dialogue, we actually can go to high places. And I think for me, after the accident, the dialogue was this is hopeless, I'm never going to get better, I'm never going to be a doctor again. And I started to get into that negative bias mentality, and they became habituations, emotions became behavior patterns. And that became my personal reality what what is your personality personality is your personal reality and what woke me up from my personal reality was my daughter at the age of six she was two when i had the accident the age of six she brought home this mother's day booklet and she said this is my mommy she always has pain this is me bringing an ice pack to my mommy Mm -hmm. and i was devastated rachel i thought oh my goodness my daughter's going to remember this debilitated woman, that's not who I am. This is what she's going to remember me as. And this is what propelled me to change my inner dialogue. Mm. And I said, I've got to be aware of what I'm thinking because this is what she's seeing. Mm. So the awareness piece is very important. Be aware of what you think. And when you change your mindset,
0: you change your health. Mm. I love the detail you're going into with us because I think it just shows how accessible this is. So I'm just going to do a quick recap. So you've talked about story, save or smile. You've talked about training your brain. Then you wrote about aerobic exercises. I found this one so interesting. Can you share the example about brushing your teeth? Oh,
2: I was talking about how our brain gets conditioned. You get up, you do the same thing every day. The brain is an organ of efficiency, so you don't even have to think about it. You just do it. But to shake it up a little bit and shake up your neurons. I say, look, just stand on one leg and brush your teeth with the other hand. Well, now the brain says, oh, what just happened here? So the neural receptors in your leg muscles sent a message up to the brain, uh oh, we have a new program, we're taking a new route today. So the brain then has to think harder and create new neural pathways to embed that. So that's why it's good to change things up and not do the same thing every day. So Neurobic exercises mean challenge your brain, learn a new language, talk to different people, have different conversations, eat different foods, try stimulating different senses, your creativity, or physically challenge yourself. So challenging your brain through diverse experiences helps your neural circuits to stay new and in growth mode. Otherwise, they just become what we call patterns of recognition. And that's it. They're the same old pathways. You do the same old things. You think the same thoughts and you get the same results. Hmm. So it keeps your brain very plastic when you introduce new experiences, new senses and new ideas. Hmm. I like people who say, I change my mind because when you change your mind, that means you're open and curious. But when people say, Nope, this is the way it is. They have a very fixed mindset. They don't have a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. So fixed mindset is the opposite of a growth mindset. Health mindsets are open and curious. They're constantly adding new
0: information and adapting to new experiences. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Belle, we're going to need to wrap up this interview because you need to go... Oh, with your husband for an anniversary lunch, I think. <laughs> and we, we need to keep this in a time frame for the episode. So maybe I can just end with this as a last question. Knowing that around 75 to 80% of the symptoms that come into a doctor's office are related to stress. When we have a symptom and we're feeling like we need some medical help, where do we start? How can we be mindful as we step into that? I think the the most
2: important thing is being aware what's your symptom trying to tell you. So is the symptom connected to a psychosocial event? Do you notice that you use your asthma inhalers more when there's an exam or you have a deadline for work. So you start connecting your symptoms to your psychosocial environment, Mm -hmm. connecting the dots. And then you can see if you manifest stress in muscle tension or high blood pressure or gut issues. So making the connections is very important. Number two is recognizing that you have an autonomic nervous system. It's a very powerful apparatus with hormones and nerves. And number Three is that you have control to some degree over that nervous system. And when you can learn to regulate your emotions, you can learn to regulate your nervous system and thereby regulate some of your symptoms that you're experiencing. The father of medicine, Hippocrates, said the most powerful forces of healing in nature are within us. You have the best doctor inside of you. You have the best pharmacy inside of you. And once you learn to master your mind and then regulate your nervous system, then you can master your health as well. And if we can teach that skill to your children at a
0: very young age that's going to be the best gift you give them that keeps on giving. Mm. Bal, thank you so much for this conversation today. We have only started to scratch the surface of your book. In this conversation, you focused on mind your breath, but you cover so much more than breath. You write about mind your gut, your heart, your sleep. So I highly recommend listeners pick up their own copy of your book, The Mind, Body, Cure. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you to you both for having me on here. I really enjoyed it. Great questions.
0: Have a great rest of your day. All right. And that's a wrap. (laughs) That's a wrap.
1: I so enjoyed how Dr. Power ended her conversation mm. with this quote from Hippocrates.
0: Ah, uh, the most powerful forces of nature are within mm-hmm. us. That's what he said.
1: It's incredible to mm. think that after hundreds of years, Hippocrates remains relevant as the father of medicine.
0: And graduating medical students still stand to recite an updated version of the Hippocratic Oath mm. upon graduation that strongly binds them to the communities that they serve.
1: And you hear that loyalty and care in our interview with Bell.
0: As well, yeah. That's also evident in her writing. It's no small task to write a book like she has.
1: And with respect for Bell and for the great father of medicine, mm-hmm. we are going to end this episode with a series of quotes. By Hippocrates.
0: That continue in this conversation with Bal. They do. And as you do with most every episode, Roy, you've created the music to augment. Our guest shared words and wisdom, and Bal told you she loves Spanish guitar.
1: She did, and she liked flute, and she yeah. liked harp, so we tried to throw them all into the soup and make them work. And I think you did a great job. Thank you. So thank you again to Dr. Bau Power. Thank you. So here are words... From Hippocrates, offered over 2,400 years ago.
0: On health and wellness.
1: Health is the greatest of human blessings.
0: All parts of the body, if exercised, become healthy, well-developed, and age more slowly. But if unused, they become liable to disease, defective in growth, and age quickly.
1: It's more important to know the person who has the condition than it is to know the condition the person has.
0: If we give every individual the right amount of nourishment and exercise, not too little and not too much, we would have found the safest way to health.
1: Our food should be our medicine, and our medicine should be our food.
0: If you're in a bad mood, go for a walk. If you're still in a bad mood, go for another walk. Walking is man's best medicine.
1: The natural healing force within each of us is the greatest force in getting well.
0: I'm Rachel Cram.
1: I'm Roy Salmon. And thank you so much for listening to Family 360.